So we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2. We're going to uh, look at the first five verses of this chapter today. So we've successfully navigated one chapter of Colossians. And we're going to begin on our second chapter today. And we're going to talk about Paul's struggle, his conflict, which is no different than the struggle and the conflict that we all have even today. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ." This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Christ, the good news. And we ask, Lord, that you would today, by your spirit dwelling in us, Lord, lead us and guide us and teach us. Illuminate your word that we would be a people transformed, having our minds renewed to your truth, that we would be bright lights, bright witnesses in the darkness of this world that men would be able to see hope, the only true hope, the hope that's found in Christ. Lord, make us that witness for your name in this world. Lord, do that for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Colossians, now I'll remind you, I love this, this little letter because this letter was written to a church not in a great, big, important city, but to a church in a, it was just a small village. It was an insignificant, if we could could call any place or anyone insignificant, in the world's standards, in the world's eyes, this little city where this church was, this little village, Colossae, was just an insignificant, unimportant place. And Paul was not even the person who planted this church. Remember, Paul's writing this letter from prison in Rome, and he's writing it to this church that is dealing with false teachers and false doctrines that are trying to invade it. And these false teachings and these false doctrines are not unlike the same types of false teachers and false doctrines that are trying to invade the church all over the known world at that time. And so Paul, he, in this chapter, begins with these words. He says to the believers there, to the Colossians, I want you to know what a great conflict or what a great struggle I have for you and for the believers for the church in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So, uh, Colossae and Laodicea, these churches were in the same region of Asia. 
They weren't real close to each other, but they were, they were in the same region. Laodicea was a much more known and important city, and Paul's writing this letter, and he says to these believers, I want you to know what a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. In other words, Paul informs us here that he's never been to this church. These believers have not seen him face to face. He knows of them because we believe it was his disciple, Epaphras, who probably founded this church, and, and it's through the hands of Epaphras he's going to send this letter to this church. And Paul writes of the great conflict, the great struggle he has for the believers here and for as many who have not seen his face. And Paul's struggle is for all the believers, even the ones that only know him, by name. And I believe much like the prayer of Jesus recorded for us in John 17, Jesus didn't just pray for his disciples that were immediately there with him. He also prayed for all of those who would believe through their words, which means that Jesus prayed for us in the garden before he was taken to be crucified. And I believe Paul, as he is struggling for these believers a spiritual struggle on their behalf. Paul knows that through their faithfulness and through the gospel preached to them, others would believe. And I would be willing to bet that probably somehow, if we could, and only God could do this, but isn't it always amazing how connected the world is? How you'll meet somebody and it's like, wow, I can't believe I met you. I can't believe we're somehow related or were somehow connected. And I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility to believe that, that somehow the faithfulness of the church there, the Colossians, has come down to touch us today. And if by no other way we have the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to them, giving encouragement to them, which is also encouragement for us. Because what they are struggling with there are the very same things that we struggle with today in our own world. And Paul's writing this letter from prison to these churches that he's never personally visited. And this church was more than likely founded by his apostle. And Paul is writing to help these churches fend off heresies that are trying to, keep, to creep in and, and take them Captive. Do you know that there are heresies, there are lies, there are persuasive words trying to creep in to your ear, to your heart, to your mind to take you captive? And Paul says that he is in a great struggle on behalf of these believers. Remember, in the previous verses, he said that he labored, striving according to the working of God that worked in him mightily, and that striving, that working, he said, was to present every man perfect in Christ. Now, this word conflict or struggle is from a Greek word, agon, which is a place of contest. So this was a stadium or arena where sporting, competitive sporting events were held. And Paul is describing his struggle here as great, which indicates that it was of high intensity. And Paul is comparing his highly intense 
spiritual struggle to a highly intense physical struggle or physical contest. And he's engaged in this struggle to present every man perfect in Christ. And Paul's great struggle was against the false teachings and the false teachers of the rulers of the darkness of this world. Those who were trying to bring in lies and heresies in opposition to the gospel, in opposition to the true light who is Christ. And they opposed the Lord Jesus and they opposed his gospel that shed the light of truth on their false teachings. Now Paul was informing the believers of his struggle because they too were in the very same struggle. He's struggling on their behalf because he knows they're in the midst of the struggle. They're actually having to deal with the false teachers and the false teachings that are trying to be introduced to the believers there. And our own struggle against the darkness of this world is real. Just as it was real for them, the struggle is real for us today. But we struggle knowing the light has already overcome the darkness. That sometimes is easy for us to forget as we're bombarded with dark messages, bad news, negative things, gloom and doom all around us. Every time you drive up to the gas pump and you wonder, how much higher can a gallon of gas go? And I'm just going to tell you, it could go a lot higher. But here's the good news. It doesn't matter how much gasoline costs per gallon. Jesus is the light of the world and he has overcome the darkness. It doesn't matter what the news media tells you. And it doesn't matter how many years they say we have left before the world ends because we've killed it through global warming. Jesus has overcome the darkness. He is the Lord and he is the creator of heaven and earth. And this world is not going anywhere until he says it is. And the only place it's going to go is to renewal. Because we're going to live on a renewed earth with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, one day. Now, we don't know when that day is, but the Word has promised us that day is coming. And until that day comes, what are we to do? We are to be faithful. We are to not get caught up in the hype of the negative doom and gloom. We are to know that Jesus has overcome this world. In fact, he says, rejoice, because I have overcome the world. Yes, you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer, because I've overcome. So the struggle is is real. We're charged to be faithful. We're charged to struggle against the darkness of this world. We're charged to know that Jesus has overcome that darkness. And this is why we are charged to not grow weary while doing good. The struggle is real, but so is our victory. And church, you can't ever forget that. Many mock God today. Many even within the church have grown weary and have lost hope that their work can make little to no difference. So what's the point? Nothing I do is going to make a difference. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to believe. That's what the world wants you to believe. Many have adopted an attitude of defeatism. Defeatism is a completely unbiblical and antichrist way of looking at your life and way of looking at the world. It's an unbiblical and antichrist way 
to view your life, to view your household, your church, your city, your state, your nation, and yes, the world. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Galatians 6, 7 through 9, Paul writes, Do not be deceived, for God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. For in due season, who controls the seasons? Do you or do I control the seasons? No. Who set the seasons in place? Who set them in motion? And who is the one that ultimately controls the seasons? Well, it is God, which tells us don't grow weary while doing good. God's got this under control. You're in a season right now, maybe a winter season, where it doesn't look like there's any life around me. But don't worry, spring is coming, summer is coming, and fruitfulness is on the way. Because God says the seasons will change. Don't grow weary while doing good. Don't lose heart because you will reap if you do not faint, if you do not lose heart. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, and 58. Paul writes, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the preceding verses, he's talking about the resurrection. And he gets to the end of these verses here, and he says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, I want you to listen, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Did you hear that, church? Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The key is that your labor is in the Lord, not in your own vain plans, not in your own vain purpose, not, not what you seek to do, but in the Lord. The promise of victory in Christ now and through the generations gives you eternal reason to be hopeful and faithful it gives you reason to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. His eternal victory gives you the eternal assurance of knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That is something we need to remember and we need to remind ourselves of on a daily basis as you are bombarded by the message of defeat and hopelessness we are a people with hope, and we are to spread that hope and make that hope known to the world around us who is desperate for hope. The struggle is for the hearts. Listen to Paul's words in, chapter, in verse 2 here. He says, I have this great conflict, this great struggle, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, that their hearts may be encouraged or that their hearts may be established. The struggle is for the heart. 
The world wants to capture your heart. The enemy wants your heart to be captured by anyone and anything except the Lord. And Paul was addressing false teachers and false teachings who were Gnostics, who promoted a more licentious lifestyle. There were also Gnostics who promoted a very aesthetic or a very legalistic lifestyle, like, like the Jews did who came in and, and were, were trying to bring people back under the law. But Paul is addressing these false teachers and these false teachings that are opposed to the gospel of grace. And Paul describes his struggle for the hearts of these believers. And he says that their hearts may be encouraged or established. Paul was trying to prevent the believers from being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Paul was seeking to firmly establish their hearts in the gospel of Christ. This is where your heart must be established today, firmly and courageously in the gospel of Christ. Paul's struggle was that their hearts be joined together and functioning in love. Paul was working to see the hearts of the believers knit and joined together as one in the love of Christ and the gospel. And this unity of heart in love was to produce a functioning of the body that resulted in the body building itself up in love. This is the very thing Paul conveys in his letter to the church at Ephesus when he talks about how we're all knit and joined together, each part supplying what the other one needs, and the body building itself up in love. This is what we are to do. This is why we are here. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider one another not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, rather provoking one another to love and good works. I love the modern technology that allowed us to live stream during COVID, but there is no substitute of the body of Christ coming together. That's like saying, I'm going to take my hand and put it somewhere and let it remotely work for me. It doesn't work that way. We are called a body for a reason, and we come, yes, to worship the Lord, but we come also to love one another, to supply to one another, to encourage one another, to provoke one another, to love and good works. That is one of the most important reasons that we come together as the body of Christ. This is the body joined together in love and functioning. He also struggled that they attain to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. I want to say that again. To all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Now Paul, when he writes this, he's using language that's very purposeful because he's countering the false teaching of Gnosticism here. Paul has already declared his mission was to present every man perfect, complete in Christ, that is in direct opposition to Gnosticism. That perfection does not, that perfection, as does this fullness of assurance of understanding, directly opposes the teachings of the Gnostics who believe that such wisdom and such knowledge emanated over the course of time and was only possessed by certain people. It was secret knowledge, it was high knowledge that not everyone could possess, and it was certainly not possessed in one person in one point in time. And Paul says, oh yeah, you don't believe that? 
let me tell you where that knowledge is fully seen, fully known, and the source of it is fully in Christ. And my struggle, my labor, my striving with the work of God working mightily in me is to present every man perfect in Christ. This flew in the face of the teaching, the false teachings that were trying to be introduced into the church. And so these Gnostics believe this wisdom, this knowledge emanated over time from different sources. And they wouldn't say Jesus wasn't a source of this knowledge. Jesus just wasn't the complete source of this knowledge. It couldn't all be contained in Jesus. And it certainly, you certainly couldn't present all of these men perfect, complete in Christ. And this is exactly what Paul is saying to the church. This is exactly what Paul is helping the church to understand. He's refuting that in presenting Christ as the one true source of all wisdom and knowledge, he's also giving assurance of faith in Christ as the source of wisdom and knowledge in the life of the believer. Where does your wisdom and where does your knowledge come from? Well, the Bible says it should come from God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. Knowledge, the knowledge and the wisdom that we must have must come from God. Don't get your knowledge from the world. Listen, there's lots of wisdom that God has given to man in his grace. Remember, we've got doctors and we've got hospitals and we've got medications. When I have a headache, I can take an aspirin. It can help me. Uh, If you think that came from the devil, you're mistaken. God has given man the wisdom to do those things. It's why the world is a better place today than it was 2,000 years ago, than it was 4,000 years ago. And it's going to get better because of the wisdom and the knowledge that comes from God. And the source of that wisdom and knowledge is Christ, and it should be the people of God, the Christians in the world, that should be at the forefront. And if you go back and you read history, much of our scientific advancement, much of what we are enjoying today came from men of God who used the wisdom of God to discover those things and teach mankind how to take advantage of those things. And so Christ is this source of wisdom and knowledge in life. And while teaching the church to reject the lies that opposed Christ and opposed the gospel, he was giving them the assurance of their faith, the full assurance of understanding that comes from Christ. His struggle was that they attained to the fullness of the knowledge of the mystery of God. So remember, Paul talked about this mystery that was hidden from ages past. He talked about it also in his letter to the Corinthians. It's called here the knowledge of the mystery of God. And he says it's found both in the Father and the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. This is also directed at this heresy. The Gnostics touted a secret knowledge that only certain ones possessed. And Gnostics did not believe this full knowledge existed in one place or in one person, but emanated over time. And this is why Paul presents Christ as that one source of wisdom and knowledge. In him, in Christ, the fullness dwells, Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians. And we are being reminded that if we dwell in Christ, we dwell in the one in whom is the fullness And in Christ, we are given the mind of Christ. 
We are being transformed by the renewing of our mind in the truth. And in Christ, you have the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. You have that if you are in Christ. Now, you may not know you have it. It's like having the algebra book. Doesn't mean you comprehend everything in the algebra book. But you got everything you need to know algebra. What you need to do now is start digging for a treasure. You need to start digging into the Word of God and allowing the Spirit of God on the inside of you to begin to renew your mind, to begin to wash over your mind, to begin to transform you and to conform you to the image of Christ. And the more you dig into God's Word, the more you discover the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ, the more you're going to be transformed and conformed to be like Jesus. So you are led into that fullness of this knowledge by the Spirit of God that dwells in you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that transforms the world. This is how the world has been transformed. This is why I believe, and I know people disagree with me, but I believe if you look over the course of world history, it is very difficult for us to say the world is a worse place to live today than it was uh, 1,500 years ago. I mean, if you lived during the Black Plague of Europe, if you just would have understood some basic things about hygiene that we take for granted, if they would have just known some basic things back then, we, they, you wouldn't have had a third of Europe die. They could have cleaned their homes, washed their hands, uh, protected themselves against germs very easily, and, and, and it wouldn't have happened. Well, why didn't they do that? Because they didn't have the wisdom and the knowledge to do that. Well, how do we have the wisdom and the knowledge today? It's called the gospel. And the gospel is making the world a better place. And I believe the gospel will continue to make the world a better place as Christians faithfully walk out their faith. Now remember, it's like the stock market. You got ups and downs, but we're trending in the right direction. Because people aren't dying by the millions of the bubonic plague today because we know something about germ warfare. I mean, I mean that in a positive way. We know how to combat germs. We also know how to wage combat with germs. That's, that's a bad thing. But we learn that because we learn something that helps us in life. So this Gnostic heresy, you might say, I don't even know what a Gnostic is. I don't know what one looks like. Well, listen, that heresy is alive and well today. It's a word we don't use very much anymore. It's a thing we don't think about unless we're reading in the scripture that might mention it or reading a commentary or book about it. But I want you to know that the Gnostic heresy that Paul was struggling against, that Paul was battling, is alive and well today. You find it under different names, and it's taught in different contexts, but there is nothing new under the sun, Solomon wrote, and that is the truth. The promise of, hi of a hidden or a secret knowledge that you can attain yourself without God is as old as creation itself. The promise of possessing your own knowledge with your own wisdom, with your own understanding, and making it all work for a life that you can create for yourself is the original lie that keeps 
man trusting in himself instead of trusting in God. And that was the sin in the garden. The sin was that man trusted himself instead of God. And that is the same sin we struggle with today. In verse 3, Paul writes, In whom, speaking of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul's struggle was for the believers to attain to the fullness of the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, just like I told the kids, and it's the truth, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul wanted Christ to be the greatest treasure held in the hearts of these believers. And God wants Christ to be the greatest treasure that you would hold in your heart today. Paul presents this as a matter of the heart, just as Jesus did in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught that our heart would be found wherever our treasure is. So find the treasure and you'll find the heart. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus, the words of Christ, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." We often read these words of Jesus in the context of money and wealth, but it is an issue of the heart, as all things really are. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, is dealing with heart issues. False teachings and false teachers, heresies, these are sin. And sin is always an issue of the heart. And if it were not, if sin were not an issue of the heart, we wouldn't be tempted by it. We would not be tempted by sin because we can only be tempted by things that appeal to us, things of our hearts that we're tempted by. I mean, think of the vegetable you despise. Are you ever tempted when you open the refrigerator to just pull that head of broccoli out and just take a big bite of it? Now, I actually love broccoli, but a lot of people don't. You're not tempted by it because it doesn't appeal to you. And these are issues of the heart because we're tempted by the things that appeal to us. In the Father and in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul's words are not accidental. He's clearly declaring for all to know that all the treasure, all the wisdom, and all the knowledge that we need to have, that is worth having, that is hidden in Christ. And if you know the one place where all the treasure is hidden, why do you look any other place? I mean, really, if you have the treasure map and you knew for sure that on Oak Island, the exact spot, did they ever find that treasure? Huh? I, I don't know, you know. Uh, they probably have never found that treasure. They just want to keep you digging for treasure in a hole where there is no treasure. That's your subscription to Netflix and your subscription to all these things. You just keep digging for treasure there, but you come up empty every time. 
But if you actually knew where the treasure was, for sure, for certain, would you go dig somewhere else? Well, of course you wouldn't. So why do people do that? If in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, why don't people go to Christ? Why aren't they digging for treasure where it can be found? Well, you don't because your heart's not seeking the treasure. Or there's something else you treasure more than the real treasure, the true treasure. Ultimately, this is true for all things. It's what you do that actually reveals where your heart is. That's why Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you treasure, that's where your heart's going to be. And Paul is struggling because he wants the believers to treasure Jesus above anything else. And God wants you to treasure Jesus above everything else. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ are revealed by the Spirit as you search for them. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And to search outside of Christ for this treasure is a futile effort that will produce nothing. Vain philosophies, wisdom of men, the latest, greatest book that's going to tell you how to have your best life yet. That book's already been published. It's called the Bible. Don't waste your money on the other ones. Just get in the Word of God and begin to dig for treasure in God's Word, and you will find it. Proverbs 25.2, it says, It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. This is the glory of God to hide all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. And this is our glory in Christ to search out that hidden treasure, that hidden wisdom and knowledge that God has intended us to find in His Son. And we find it by His Spirit. And this is exactly what Jesus taught in His parable of the kingdom. Matthew 13, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Or verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And we read those parables and we say, man, I wish that would happen to me. Man, I wish I could find a field with treasure buried in it like that. Well, listen, I'm going to tell you what. God has given you something better than a field full of treasure. He's given you His Word. He's given you His Spirit. He's given you His Son. He has given you eternal life. The life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God. You've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. What greater treasure could you possess than the treasure of the life of the Son of God. God has called us to be treasure hunters. We have waiting to be found treasure greater than all that buried in the ground or under the sea, but we must seek it. Luke 11, 9 and 10, Jesus said, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone... Did you hear that, church? Everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. 
In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It is all there waiting for you to seek and to find. Persuasive words are persistent truth. Verses 4 and 5. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Paul was writing from prison, presenting to them persistent truth. He was not with them personally, but he says, I'm with you in spirit. In other words, his heart and his mind was with them. He rejoiced to see their good order and the steadfastness of their faith that was reported back to him. And just as Paul was teaching them and warning them to be aware of men coming to them with persuasive words, we too must be aware. And much like the world then, we live in a world today where persuasive words are at work all around us. And these persuasive words and those who speak them do so with the sole purpose of deceiving us, with the onslaught of persuasive words More than ever, we need men to stand and to declare God's persistent truth. Doctrines and beliefs historically considered false and even demonic are now promoted as mainstream. Christians are pressured to accept many false beliefs for the sake of simply going along with the culture. We have Christian people, Christian churches, Christian denominations celebrating and fighting for the right to murder babies in and out of the womb. And many Christians are afraid to even speak the truth. We have men who are trained in schools that are more interested in teaching philosophy than theology. We have Much theology espoused today in churches and in seminaries and in colleges that are more worldly than they are biblical. The ethics of the world are based on a morality that is no longer anchored in the truth. The truth now is more like a marker driven by the tide than a lighthouse anchored in the rock. Both can provide a position, but only one can guide you to safety. Listen, I grew up on the coast, and there you have channel markers out there. And some of them are, are, are built into the ground, but you've also got these markers that have an anchor at the bottom. They mark the way that you're supposed to go. You know what happens if that anchor comes loose and that marker comes loose, and that's just floating around out there? You're going to think that's marking something it's not. You're going to think that's safe passage, but it's actually not safe passage. And this is what truth has become today. It's become relative. It's become subjective. Today, the culture wants you to believe that the world shaped by the word of God and the gospel of Christ is no longer relevant. In fact, the world wants you to believe that holding on to an outdated and counterproductive biblical worldview is holding back humanity's progress. According to the present wisdom of this age, The boundaries and the structures that have guided society up to this point must be replaced. Things we once took for granted, like the distinction between male and female, can no longer be assumed simply based on biology or anatomy. Boundaries must be abolished. 
A prime example of this is the binary structure of gender that is now seen as obsolete. It is being replaced by a non-binary system that is as fluid as water. Trying to contain this new understanding of gender with the old structure is like trying to contain a body of water with a chain-link fence. You can't do it. The world would say, see, the old structure no longer holds water. But the truth is this, the structure was never created for the purpose of holding water. The structure was created for providing a safe boundary for man. And God created the world and all the things that are in it according to his plan, according to his purpose, and he did this for man's good and for his glory. And it most certainly included the gender binary of male and female. Paul and the writers of Scripture are no longer present with us. Jesus is not with us face to face, but they are absolutely with us in spirit. They are absolutely with us in the word that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded by faithful men, and passed down to us through the ages. And now the indwelling Holy Spirit leads us and teaches us and guides us into the truth that made a difference then and will make a difference now. He is still speaking to us today through his word that is recorded and preserved for us and illuminated by his spirit. There are persuasive words being spoken to you, bombarding you all the time. The purpose of these smooth words is to deceive you into accepting them even if you may not believe them. And this is what I hear. Well, I, well, I don't believe that. Well, are you standing against that? Are you willing to speak against that? Are you willing to take a stand and say, that's not true? Well, no, that would be offensive. Or no, that, that would be too controversial. But I, I don't believe it. Well, I'm telling you what, church, we're living in a day and time in our city, our state, our nation, in the world, we're just knowing what's true and keeping quiet about it is not good enough anymore. Because as, as the church quietly believes the truth, the world is loudly abolishing it. Now, they can't abolish the truth because the truth is the truth. But they can sure make a mess of the world we live in by believing a lie that they want to call the truth. So the purpose of getting us to accept these words, even if we do not believe them, is that if you accept them instead of opposing them, your quiet acceptance may actually lead to others believing them and embracing that lie as the truth. In other words, somebody's got to stand up and say, stop, that's the wrong way. If you keep going that way, you're going to die. As persuasive as the words may be, however appealing the false message is to your flesh, or the the, the flesh of the world. You have a word that is mightier. You have a living and a powerful word called the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 describes it this way, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we 
must give an account. When you declare the word of God without compromise, when you speak the truth in love, knowing that it will not sound loving to those who hate the truth, you actually are loving your neighbor. You are speaking the living and powerful word of God that is sharper than a two-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intents of man's heart. And when God's word is spoken, its declaration exposes all things, whether men admit it or not. There is no creature hidden from his sight. Not you, not me, no one in this world is hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we, that's you and that's me, we must give account. We are living in a day when man's persuasive words must give way to God's persistent truth. But that will not happen until God's people began to persistently and courageously declare his truth. There is no quick or easy solution to our problem. There is no big fix that will change the world overnight. The world is not changed through a series of big events. The world is changed through the seemingly insignificant small events that persistently occur over the course of time. It is the series of small events that culminate into the big events we read about in our history books. But what we need right now is for the church, and that includes you and me, to begin to faithfully commit to the small things, the daily things, the things so small and so daily they seem powerless and insufficient for our current situation. You must faithfully pray daily. You must faithfully read your Bible daily. You must faithfully teach your children and disciple them daily. And this is especially true if your children are in government schools where it is forbidden to reinforce biblical truth that is their hope. You must be faithful to worship personally each day. You must be faithful to worship corporately each week. You must be faithful to come to the Lord's table each week. You must be faithful to go into the world and to make disciples. You must be faithful in your vocation, whatever it is, to do all as unto the Lord. You must be faithful to give witness to his love, faithful to live centered in his gospel, and faithful to stand in the truth. You must be faithful to live in the truth. That's what it means to stand in the truth. It doesn't mean to get on Facebook and spout a bunch of stuff. It means to actually live in the truth, stand in the truth, and let your life be a witness to the truth in everything you do and everything you say and everything that you are. You must be faithful to be willing to faithfully die even for the truth. Our friend Gatana was here just recently and one of the pastors he just trained in Northeast Africa just again, very shortly after they trained him, went back to his homeland and was martyred, was killed for his faith because he refused to stop preaching Jesus. It's foreign to us here in America because we have been so blessed. 
But yet there are men and women paying literally the price of their lives every day for the sake of the gospel. And we're afraid to just tell people the truth on Facebook. We're afraid to get up in pulpits and call sin, sin. That's got to end. And it can't just begin with pastors like me. It means all of us as believers in Jesus Christ. You must first be faithful in the small things, the daily things, if you ever hope to be faithful in other things deemed greater. Our world has changed through the persistent lies and the consistent application of those lies and the small things that have mostly gone unnoticed until now. We woke up one day and said, what happened? Well, it's been happening a long time. We just haven't noticed it. The small things have now become large and overwhelming things. And we want to react to those large and overwhelming things in the same large and overwhelming ways. But that's not how we're going to turn the tide back. We're going to turn it back the same way it got turned the first, way, first place. We have to begin with persistent, consistent faithfulness to Christ and His gospel in the small and daily things of life, even in the most insignificant things. And we grow from there like leaven that leavens the whole lump until we become faithful and consistent in the small things once again. The great things we seek after will not occur. We must change the world by seeing the hearts of men change. That change will occur through the persistent truth of the gospel and the consistent application of that truth in the lives of believers, in the everyday, the mundane things of life. And if we are faithful and consistent, we can be assured that those small things will one day or one generation grow into large and overwhelming things. And this will be our good. And this will be God's glory. This is how the world is changed. One heart and one generation at a time. What does that mean? That means you may not see the world change the way you want it to see in your lifetime. But if you just write it off and say it's no use, all you're doing is kicking the can down the road for the next generation that's going to have to pay that price, that's going to have to stand up and tell the truth when it really may in America cost them their life, like it does in Ethiopia, like it does in Somalia, like it does in the Sudan, like it does in countless other countries. We don't live in that country. We don't live in those countries. We live in America. But those countries didn't get there any different than we may get there if we don't stand up and speak up. So stop kicking the can down the road. We like to use that analogy with the, with the national debt. Listen, the national debt is the least of our problem. We've got a debt of sin that only Jesus can pay. And if we keep adding to that debt of sin and stop, if we don't stop and cry out to God in humble repentance, there's something much worse than a national debt and a financial collapse that will come to this nation. And you and I have the power to make a difference. It's called the gospel. Jesus Christ who lives in us. That's good news, church. You have the good news. Don't hide it. Don't be afraid of it. Speak it. Live it. 
Let the chips fall where they may. Don't worry about what the world thinks about you because you're not going to give account to the world one day. You're going to stand before God and give an account to him one day. And I want him to say to you, enter in, my good and faithful servant. You have been made perfect in my sight through the blood of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's prepare to come to the table. And this table is our reminder what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus made possible for us that we could not do for ourselves. That was impossible for us. Now, we are a church who believes in the Holy Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church. We believe in them too. I believe I'm going to have Catholic brothers and sisters with me in heaven. But when we profess the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the universal church, which means if you're not a, a member of this particular local body, you're welcome to this table as long as you count yourself a member of His body. If you count yourself a member of His covenant people, then you are welcome to this table. Let's all stand. Your charge today is to be faithful, to be consistent, to be persistent in the small things. Yes, even the things that are typically overlooked. The things most others do not pay attention to, but God does. These are the things God sees that others do not. Do that, and you will see things change. Keep doing that. And encourage others to do the same. And by faith, you will begin to see even the world change. That's good news. Never forget, Jesus is the Lord. Amen. Let's sing our thanks. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Have a great day.